is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled You're Something Bigger. If you're just tuning in, that is the title a little weird to you, maybe. <laughs> This episode is a play off making art with something bigger from last year, late last year. Um, I think it would probably be helpful to go back and listen to that episode. I'm going to do a quick recap of making art with something bigger, but I love that episode. It was one of the most listened episodes of last year and it's the crux of my work. And I think, I suspect if you've found yourself continually listening to this podcast or on and off finding things that really resonate with you here. It's the same for you too. Um, Before we dive in, I want to share something with the folks that do repeatedly listen to this podcast because I've I've mentioned this before, but we have a sweet little following here and, and it really is encouraging to me because I market this podcast not at all. I did open an Instagram account a few months ago and it's barely a thing. Um, This podcast is mostly um, visited by folks that have been connected to my work for a while and then also those who have shared it. And I've been surprised, honestly, in in the best way at the following that we've been able to cultivate without any marketing. That's going to change soon. Um, But for now, this is the way that it's going. And if you are enjoying the podcast, if you're finding yourself coming here um, weekly or regularly, please consider leaving a review. Um, Any any review. Even if it's, I I will even go so far as to say, even if it's a negative review, Um, because first of all, I want that feedback. And second of all, um, the number of reviews that this podcast has helps put it in front of other people's eye, uh, I, I always want to say eyeballs, <laughs> put it in front of other people's ears. Um, so thank you in advance for considering doing that because it is a huge investment in this podcast. Um, a lot of podcasters will monetize their podcasts by using ads or um, creating a Patreon. I haven't done either of those things um, since the podcast returned last year. And and for that reason, a review is tremendous. It's tremendous. I can't, I can't express enough. So thank you in advance. Um, all right. Making art with something bigger. You're something bigger. So on and off the last... you know, months or so of this podcast, I've been increasingly talking about making art with something bigger than yourself. And if you have listened to the original episode last year, um, and also some of the subsequent episodes, I do on and off talk about my resistance to labeling this thing. Um, And there's many people that feel a lot of comfort from doing that. Perhaps you are very um, inspired by a religious conception of this thing and maybe calling it God or Buddha or any of the other names, Muhammad, any of the other names that have been attached to this thing. Um, and a lot of the names that have been attached to this thing were people like Buddha who manifested this 
a connection with this thing that was bigger. Um, and, but this isn't a religious podcast, right? Like I'm very interested in the way that making art is a direct connection to that thing in such a way that, and maybe this is almost blasphemous to say, but I kind of like that. You don't need a guru or a teacher. Um, I am going to talk about the benefits of having a teacher in this podcast, but uh, in this episode specifically, but I, I really believe that when you start recognizing that your art making, whatever it is, is a direct channel to something bigger, you can bypass the church if you want. It doesn't mean that churches don't have tremendous value. Um, and I think we can all agree, especially if we're listening to a podcast like this, that churches have a very both-and relationship with the people that they serve, right? I I was raised in a church. My mom is a minister. <laughs> I've talked about this on and off. Um, she's a commission minister of education, so she's not ordained. She's not the one in the pulpit, um, but she's a beautiful writer. She does give small sermons. She is an educator and and all throughout my childhood, she was the one that, you know, led the children's youth program in our church. Um, and I think I had a pretty positive experience with religion. Um, my mother, for all intents and purposes, as well as the church that we went to, is very progressive. Um, you know, I remember going to my mother, and this is a tangent, but maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's helpful. I don't know. It's popping up to share. Um, I remember going to my mother when I was in junior high, and it was at that time that I started to really read the Bible more and and feel, like, terrified, <laughs> like, that I was going to go to hell. You know, I was experimenting with, you know, cigarettes and, like, you know, not following the rules and, like, really worried that... I was getting, you know, judged pretty harshly by this thing that was bigger, right? This is how, you know, the religious relationship to something bigger has created harm, I, I believe. Um, and I remember going to my mom finally just and expressing to her that I was pretty scared. And her response was so beautiful. She said, and she... <laughs> She shared with me this verse from from the chapter of Romans, and I actually don't remember the verse anymore, like the number, the chapter or the verse, but it was basically to paraphrase that there is nothing in heaven or earth that can separate you from this thing. And she said, you don't, you don't need to worry about that. And she didn't go into this big, long historical, historical explanation about why there were people that interpreted the Bible this way. She just, she knew I was 12. <laughs> she just said, I need you to know that you will never be separated from this thing, no matter what you do. This thing loves you no matter what you do. And I was lucky. I was lucky to be raised in a conception of religion like that. Um, and I, but, but also like now that I live in Texas and I've had the opportunity to go to some Southern Baptist services, I see that that's not always the case, right? There's this very, there's this very different conception of something bigger from that from that vantage point. And I, I suspect people that like gravitate towards that conception probably aren't listening to a podcast like this. But if you happen to have a relationship with something bigger um, that you call God and it's, you know, very, you know, very black and white in that way, um, 
that's not to say that there isn't a place for you in this podcast episode, because I really think there is. I really think some of the ideas with something bigger are for everybody if they choose it. And that's why I guess I love removing some of the labels so that we can get as many people into the mix around this idea as possible. And and for some people, calling this thing something bigger isn't going to work for them. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, but for I feel like for a decent number of us that are artists, it's important to not label this thing prematurely because I honestly don't know. I, I, there's just so much I don't know about that, about this thing. And I kind of like that. It's like one of my favorite things. The mystery is one of my favorite things. So I wanted to start there with this episode. Maybe that was a little bit of a roundabout way of starting the episode, but I wanted to use that as an inroad to talking about your specific relationship with your something bigger because it's very personal. And I've talked, you know, pretty glowingly about this relationship so far in this podcast. But today I wanted to talk about some of the challenges when you decide to make things in this way, whether it's drawing or painting or poetry or music or working in a corporate environment or being a banker or um, working in retail, um, blue collar jobs, like every type of work that we do is an art form if it meets certain standards or qualities that art is. Everything can be art. John Dewey wrote a beautiful book about this. I've talked about this book before, Art and Experience, where he really makes the argument that art isn't just an object, that it absolutely can be an object, but it also is an experience that you're living through. And that's why you can be an accountant and have an artistic relationship with that work. Um, this has been talked about before, so I don't want to, or at least I've talked about this before in other podcast episodes. And um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to delve into that too much right now. But for those of you that are just tuning in and possibly for the first time who might be feeling like, well, I'm not an artist, I work, you know, <laughs> as a plumber <laughs> or something, you, if that is, if that is something that is speaking to your soul and you're bringing a certain quality and an energy to that work, then it is 100% an art form. It's why sometimes we interact with people and we get the sense that, oh, this is just a job for them. And then we interact with other people who do the same work and it feels artistic somehow. It's because the way that we engage with things determines whether or not it's an art form. When we choose to do this kind of work intentionally and when we intentionally start paying attention to something bigger communicating with us like and maybe this is important to say first before I continue to go forward because I feel like some people listening to this episode and also just generally interacting with the content on this podcast have some context for what I'm talking about but I remember when I first started I don't know interacting with ideas like this it was very frustrating for me because a lot of the teachers and mystics and gurus and people that were talking about more abstract ideas like this, they would talk about it in a way that presumed that I had context that I didn't have. And it was very frustrating. And I remember um, years ago when I was seeing a local medium, her name is Alyssa Mailhorn, and I'm going to talk about her and some other folks who I've gotten support from 
with some of my ideas around artistry um, later in this episode. And I'm also going to leave links to their content in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about their work. But I remember telling her, I like, where do I go? Like, I don't understand. Like, where do I go? And I remember her saying, and it was in some ways the most frustrating and also the most helpful advice at the same time. She said, there's not a manual for this. She said, you just, like, it's like walking in a tunnel with a small flashlight and you only get to see one step ahead. And a lot of what you are listening to right now is darkness in the tunnel to you. But once in a while, you'll get a nugget from those people and you'll add it to your repertoire. And she didn't say this exactly like this is all like stuff that I construed after talking with her you know essentially she just wanted me to know there's not a manual and if you feel confused that's normal and you're going to figure it out slowly one step at a time and I I suppose I needed to hear that because I felt weirdly frustrated like like that like that I was like somehow in the dark because of something that I had done wrong and she was, and she basically was saying, no, you, that's just part of the journey, you know? And that was 14 years ago that she told me that. And she's been right, like just very slowly over the course of the last 14 years, I've started to really understand some of these ideas through personal experience. So, so with that disclaimer being said, like when you start Maybe you don't know what I mean when I say listening to something bigger. Like maybe that has no meaning to you and that's okay. Just like file it away because one day, maybe a week from now, maybe a year from now, maybe 10 years from now, you're going to be sitting down to do the thing that you do and something's going to pop into your head and you're going to be like, oh, oh, is this what guidance is? You know, like And then you'll start to pay attention to it more and more. And you'll notice that there's a quality that's different when this thing is communicating with you than when it's you communicating with you. And, and it is an organic deal. It is, it's an organic, messy, spiralic deal. So as you start interacting with this thing in this way, it can be really beautiful. And I, I've mentioned, I mentioned a few minutes ago that that's been the focus of my conversation on this podcast so far. But I want to talk today specifically around the ways that it is very scary and frustrating and also in some ways the way, and also in some ways opening you up to being gaslit right and left by the culture at large, people that are close to you, people that you work with, and not because there's malice. You know, I really believe that nothing that, you know, the phrase, nothing should be attributed to malice that cannot be explained by ignorance or something to that effect. When it comes to making with something bigger and running into a lot of crunchiness, with those around you, I have discovered that 99.9% of the time, it's that they just don't have any conception for what that is. And so it looks crazy what you're doing. This was something that took me a little bit of time to really wrap my head around because 
early on in my career, I very, I very intentionally interacted with others as little as possible so that I wouldn't have to look crazy to them. You know, I can make artistic decisions in the comfort of my own space and I wouldn't have to answer to anybody because I had a day job at the time that was paying my bills. And so nobody really had insight into what I was doing with my work for a while. And then I met Jason. And we didn't live together the first two years together. Um, But we moved in together in 2016. And this was right around the time that my business was taking off. And I... I remember, and I I do believe this is one of the reasons why he's my person, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but he had a front row seat to me making with something bigger, and he he got it. Um, And that's huge. And so I want to talk a little bit about why that's huge, and I want to concretize it a little bit, because... For some of you, you're going to immediately have had already experienced this, but for some of you, maybe this will be helpful for the future too. So when you make with something bigger, it does look crazy. And the reason why, and I've mentioned this before, is that that thing that's bigger doesn't care about what your family thinks, what your friends think, about what the economy thinks, about what your boss thinks, about what your colleagues think. That thing only cares about what your your soul is here to do. And oftentimes, the guidance that you get will be based on what the next best step is for your soul. And most of the time, Making in this way doesn't make any sense based on any of the other things that I just mentioned. So a really excellent example of this in my life, like in a really big level, and I've talked about this in that podcast in the past, was when I chose to leave Ohio in 2010. I had been teaching in a public school art classroom for five years. I um, was very respected. I was the year that I left, I was nominated for teacher of the year in my district. I was doing very well. I was just finally getting to a place in my income that I could stop working a second job. Ohio is a union state, so teachers get paid so well there. And you know, I was very close to all of my friends and family. Um I was healthy. I was you know, I had this like really like robust road biking community that I was, you know, constantly interacting with. I had an art studio in downtown Akron. I mean, things were working really well. And I just was, I couldn't, I just was getting this guidance. And this was before I even identified something bigger explicitly at all. I just, I always felt like there was no way for me to ignore certain urges that I was having. And my whole life, I've been unable to ignore them. And in some ways, that probably infuriated. I wouldn't say infuriated because my parents are, I think, pretty compassionate, understanding people. But it confuses the heck out of them. (laughs) Like, you know, my decisions confuse the heck out of them. And I was getting guided to leave, like to dump it all, you know, like to just to just go. 
And I got this opportunity to apply to the University of Texas Austin grad school program. I needed to get a master's degree in order to renew my teaching license anyway. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do it in Ohio. I want to, I want to get out of here. And I wasn't brave enough to just like cut the cord because there was, you know, like a lot of fear, like, and this is something that's very normal when you start making with something bigger, something bigger will urge you to do things that feel very unsafe sometimes. And learning to know the difference can be tricky. Like, am I listening to my soul or am I just being ridiculous right now? (laughs) And one of the things that I've learned, and this will be maybe a topic for another time, is that when you're making with something bigger, it's very quiet and very gentle and it will never force itself like when you're when you're getting screamed at by your ego or your brain it will be very loud (laughs) I'm very skeptical of any guidance I get that's loud and aggressive that's not something bigger something bigger is very sweet and patient and gentle (laughs) and it was just always just in the back of my brain like wouldn't you just feel so happy to get out of this place? And I was like, yes, but getting out of this place is foolish in every practical way, (laughs) right? Like, so I, I, and I, I I think this was intentional. I, I got an opportunity to apply to grad school, but it happened to line up perfectly with my five-year marker in my district. And at five years, my district offered an unpaid sabbatical option for all of its teachers. So you could leave for a whole year and go do whatever you wanted to do. It was unpaid, but you could keep your job and you could return after that year. And so I applied to UT. I got accepted and I thought, this is amazing. I, I can listen to this urge that I've been having forever. I can listen to this guidance but I can do it in a safe way, you know? Three months before I moved, I met a man who was, at that time, like, just a dream. I had unsuccessfully been dating most of my 20s. I met this man, and I I remember the person that introduced us was a teacher friend of mine, and I remember going into her classroom, like, a few months like not, no, not even a few months, like a few weeks into dating and saying, I think I'm going to marry this guy. Like he's, it was, it was so special. I was really starting to come on board with this idea of listening to guidance, right? Like I made this decision to go to grad school. Everything was working out. Suddenly I'm meeting this person that's such a good fit for me. I, and I think I'm getting guidance to be with this person like this, this is it. (laughs) And I didn't realize it at the time, but what I was doing was, and this, I think this is very common, especially when you first begin making with something bigger is that you start attaching your own attentions to what something is bigger is guiding you to do. And so I thought, surely I'm being, you know, connected to this man and connected to the University of Texas so that we can all be together, you know? And really early on in our dating life, he communicated with me that that was a problem for him. He 
um, had life circumstances that really tethered him to Ohio. And he was like, I, I guess I could come. He said, but I got to tell you, like, it would be a huge risk for me. And I think I need to know that we're like definitely going to get married and have a family. Those are really important to me. Like, I, like if I'm going to come to Austin, like I need to know you're going to stay there, like that you plan on staying there. And I immediately clammed up. I thought, oh no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I can't commit to any of that. And I started to experience one of the first really crunchy aspects of making your life with something bigger. And that is that I was getting guidance to be with this person and it wasn't working, (laughs) you know, and it was very hard. Like we, we dated, I don't know, maybe six or seven months. Half of that time we dated was while I was in Ohio. And then the second half was while I was in Texas, long distance, And ultimately when we separated, I'll never forget, he said to me, I think the reason that we met was so I could get you to Austin. And I had never thought of it that way, but it was true. Like he had this gigantic truck. (laughs) We strapped my car to the back. We loaded up all my stuff in the back of his truck. And, you know, he was, he was the one that got me here physically. And then also one of his very close friends lives here and he introduced me to her like a few days into me living in Austin and she has become one of my best friends here um I lived with her after grad school for a period of time she helped us buy our home she's an amazing realtor um so I was guided to this man very intentionally by something bigger and it was not for the reasons I thought. This is a really maddening aspect of making art with something bigger. Getting used to the discomfort that comes around that, you know? And then simultaneously while all this was happening, I looked nuts to everyone that cared even a little bit about me because I was, you know, I had met this man who was crazy about me I was crazy about him we you know should have worked but we weren't and you know he was just like can't you just stay (laughs) in Ohio you already have this amazing job like can't you just go to grad school here and meanwhile I'm getting all of my family and friends saying yes like from an economic relationship you know professional standpoint family standpoint your decision to leave all of this is crazy. And it was like, it was, you know, if if you're looking at my decision from any of those filters, any of those vantage points, it made no sense. And it was, it was a painful time. I remember one of my friends, friends then who is actually no longer a friend because of this particular development. But I remember chatting with him not long after I moved to Austin and I was pretty emotional because I was going through the pain of probably separating from this guy that I really cared about and also letting go of my sabbatical and you know finally severing my relationship with my school district and I remember he really got my face and the thing that he said and I suspect that a lot of people have run into a version of this when they're making their life with something bigger. He said, I think you're a little too old to be making, to be making decisions like this. 
And it was such a punch in my gut. But also, you know, that's that's a that's a huge voice from the overculture, you know, and he'd really absorbed it himself. Right. We associate making art with something bigger, making our lives with something bigger as something that only children do. It's something we permission children to do to a certain point, And then at a certain point, we tell them, now you need to stop this. You need to be, you need to prioritize making your life and making the things in your life with these other things, with the institutions around you, with your family, with your friends, with the economy, with paying your bills. Like these are the things that are going to guide your decision-making now. And for many of us, you know, you know, just as like a means of survival and as a means to maintain connection with our communities and the people that we care about, we do that, (laughs) you know? And I suppose I, I, I still don't totally know why I didn't listen to him or anyone else for that matter. I think it's partly because when I was 20 years old in my undergrad, I read this book, called conversations with God. And it was shared with me by a friend. And this was how she, I want to share it with you, how she shared it with me, because I think that's why I chose to read it. (laughs) She said, Beck, I read this book. It's called conversations with God. She said, it's written by a man who claims that he had a conversation with God through his writing. And he kept like a dictation of it. And he put the whole thing in three books. I read the first one she said, and I know, I know your mom is a minister and I know you like grew up in the church. And she goes, so I, I kind of feel like you need to read this because I don't know how a human could have written this book. That's what she said. And I was like, yeah, I will bite. <laughs> and I read it and I loved it so much. I subsequently read all three books and it was life-changing. And one of the things that happened to me after I read these books was that I said, to something bigger because by this point in my life I was already kind of moving away from more religious conceptions of God like I was more moving towards something more expansive than that in my opinion and I (laughs) said but I, I remember sitting in my like college house bedroom which was like always the messiest most disgusting space you could imagine and like just sitting surrounded by heaps of trash and like clothes and, and saying out loud, like, I will never stop listening to you. Like, I promise. Like, and I, I didn't realize the power of saying that out loud because, (laughs) because I have actually tried to ignore that thing so many times since then and have been completely unable to, no matter how much pain it causes. And (laughs) I don't regret making that commitment, that commitment has been the best commitment I've ever made. And maybe that's hyperbolic to say, but it is one of the best that I've ever made. And it's not for the faint of heart. Making in tandem with this thing will get you judged. And, And I suppose part of the reason I wanted to record this episode isn't to make that process easier but to make you feel less crazy for it. Because, you know, initially when I started really, really listening to some of these bigger energies guiding me in my life, I I was gaslit right and left by lots of folks and I really beat myself up for it. Uh, You know, there was this desire I had to please them and this bigger thing too. And that 
it was impossible. It was a fool's errand and I suffered, you know, for, for a good full year doing that. So this kind of happens in a macro way. And I suppose maybe we can all understand that. Like if we make these like really large decisions in our lives that are in tandem with something bigger, you know, like people that say, oh yeah, you know, I got, I dropped out of college and I drove to LA to like chase my dream of working in Hollywood or whatever. Like those types of decisions, it, it just seems, it makes sense, you know, <laughs> why people would retaliate against decisions like that. But I've discovered as I've continued to create my artwork and create my life in tandem with this bigger energy, I've, I've also noticed that this happens in really small ways too. Um, I mentioned earlier about Alyssa, Alyssa and her work and how it's supported my journey going forward as an artist. And not long after Brayden was born, I took a workshop from her it was like a weekend workshop on parent spiritual parenting. I've talked a little bit about it in um, Art Baby and some of the other episodes that I've recorded. And she, the night before the workshop, we get this email saying, um, the location is no longer at my office. <laughs> we don't know where it's going to be. We'll let you know. And it was, I was kind of like, what? <laughs> And as early as a few hours before the workshop started the next day, I had no idea where I was going. Like, I, And I remember thinking this is, it was a little bit of a red flag at the time, right? Because I'm a business owner. Like, you don't do that to people. Like, you know, <laughs> like they're relying on you. Like, but I get this address. It's for a house in a random neighborhood in South Austin. I go there. It feels weird. Like I show up and... I, I arrive and we quickly, all of us in the workshop, come to find that Alyssa, who is a profoundly good medium, <laughs> if you're ever looking for someone, um, had gotten guidance the night before that she should not have it at her office. And wouldn't you know, the morning of the workshop, before we all met, <laughs> she gets a phone call from the, the uh, landlord saying that her office and other other spaces in the building had flooded. And I, I remember at the time, like as she was, she was telling me this story before anyone else arrived and we were having like a one-on-one conversation for a few minutes about it. And I said, how do you navigate that? Like, like how do you navigate the way that people respond to that? Because you know, like we live in this world where like pivoting in that way, you know, doesn't make sense. And she said, it's, you know, it, it's taken practice. <laughs> and I remember even, you know, asking how she did it with her assistant, you know, because I, I know it must be hard for people who work directly with me to watch me make decisions that don't make any sense. And she said, yeah, that's also taken time. <laughs> That when you start really interacting with this thing, you'll start getting guidance that can really feel weird. And then Alyssa said, and I'll never forget this, she said, I'm like, it's kind of cool that I got to like learn the reason for this guidance. Like the office flooded. She said, sometimes I never find out. And that's the real exercise in faith, isn't it? learning to listen to this thing and sometimes you never know why 
it it's it maybe it sounds a little weird in some ways for me to be sharing this because it runs so counter to the ways that we've been taught to interact with our life and our work but in other ways it's very intuitive and we aren't actually learning anything at all. And I've mentioned this before. This is the way of the child. My son is interacting with the world this way right now. He, I mean, yes, of course, like because of me and my husband and because of his teachers and stuff and his grandparents, you know, he is constantly having (laughs) systems that we create being enforced upon his time. But generally, he moves through the world engaging with something bigger all the time, very easily. And so it feels crazy to to think about making art or our lives with something bigger initially. And also, it's mostly a remembering process. The more that I do this, the more I'm reminded of five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old Becca. I can go back and look at my journals. I used to keep journals and diaries. I I think I started as soon as I could write, like pretty reliably in first grade, I got my first diary. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, diary in the loosest sense of the term (laughs) because I was just learning how to write, write, you know, but you can feel an energy in my writing that was really noticeably connected to something bigger and when I hit nine years old my journals start to change and I start obsessively writing about what other people think like like my seven-year-old journal like I have this whole like five-page entry about this bee garden that my friend and I created in the field behind our school and we would name the different bees and we would go out there every day at recess and we'd be like oh one of them was Lily I'd be like oh there's Lily it was so apparent that we were making our lived experience in tandem with an energy that was very magical and creative (laughs) and and then all of a sudden, the tone of my writing just shifts dramatically. No more Lily, no more bumblebees, right? Like, I'm very much starting to absorb the overculture's messaging by the time I'm in fourth and fifth grade of like, you need to care what other people think now, <laughs> right? You're getting, you know, I was getting overtly and covertly judged for being too mystical in my interactions by that point. I I wanted to share some of those stories as examples. I, I wonder if you have started to recognize some examples in your own life because we've all done this, whether it was intentional or not. We've all prioritized creating in our lives and creating actually onto our lives with something bigger um, and experience the blowback of that. It's when that process becomes very intentional and repeated (laughs) that I truly think that not only do individual lives transform, but so do collective communities and the world at large. I do think that this process of learning to intentionally and consciously make in tandem with something bigger than ourselves is what's happening globally. And at some point, 
more people will be doing this than not. And that's when things are going to get crazy. <laughs> in, in the best way and also maybe in a destructive way. I don't know. So I wanted to talk briefly after these stories about ways that you can know that you're working with something bigger and also ways that you can heal after years of not working with something bigger because you were told that it was a problem. Um, These are things that have helped me, but I suppose take what resonates with you and leave the rest as always, because as I mentioned earlier in this episode, there are like nuggets, you know, that are, that your flashlight is illuminating there for you and the rest of it can just be left, you know? So the first way I know I'm making with something bigger is that my choices will confuse people. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that it's not a pass to ignore feedback. And so this is tricky. It's a both and situation. I'm not talking about just like just bulldozing our way through life and saying, oh, my decisions don't make sense to you. Well, fuck you. You know, like that's not... Um, in some ways that would be easier. That would make this whole process so much easier. Um, I have learned that sometimes people are confused for good reason. (laughs) And so holding space for this, this guidance that I feel like I'm getting and also holding space for how other people feel about it is, is hard. It's gotten easier over time. It's a muscle, just like any exercise. I have learned that in the early years when I was first starting to intentionally interact with something bigger, I didn't have the bandwidth to do it all the time because it was exhausting. It was exhausting. I wasn't strong enough, just like someone who starts jogging again for the first time in three years. You know, I would only have the energy to do it once a week or something like that. The second way that I I know that I'm working with something bigger is that my choices will run counter to master narratives a lot of the time. Not all of the time, but a lot of the time. Um, If the choices that you're making don't get you one of the things that society says that you should want, it's often an inroad into something bigger. Um, My guidance is rarely, if ever, connected to money or security. Um, Also, my guidance will never tell me to, like, jump off a cliff, (laughs) right? Like, um, it's usually just a whisper. Like, you can trust this. This is a good time for you to risk something right now. We've got got it, right? The third way is that my choices often will fail. And I talked about this, you know, in some of the earlier stories, but a lot of times the thing, the guidance that I get will not be for the reasons that I think. Um, Something bigger often has a completely different perspective on why you should move forward in a certain way. And, you know... It's, 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 uh, I don't know, tricky that way. 
That's a terrible platitude, but you know what I mean. The thing I like about these three items, your choices confuse people, your choices run counter to master narratives, your choices will fail. These are things that are absolutely present in art making as well. Um, Oftentimes, when I'm making, when I'm drawing, when I'm intuitive drawing, um, when I'm moving through a process of making something without an end in mind, because this thing that's bigger has the end in mind and I am just doing my best to tap into it. <laughs> um, my choices won't just confuse people, they'll confuse me, <laughs> right? Like last night I sat down to do some intuitive drawing before bed. I've been prioritizing before bed intuitive drawing more recently um and I'm always struck by how I won't really know what (laughs) I'm doing for the first 30 to 40 percent of the drawing I am making lines and shapes that feel intuitively very good and assuming and hoping that that is a sign that it is what something bigger wants as well Usually that's true, by the way. Usually the things that feel most fluid and natural are in alignment with what something bigger wants. Um, What isn't fluid, what isn't natural is my ego's response to that, (laughs) right? Like, so I like feel like, so last night I'm drawing, I feel very good making this certain type of shape. But my ego is like, where is this going? <laughs> you know? And and then also like I'm I'm still ha- I'm still running an art business, y'all. It is very uncomfortable for me, even to this day, to make art this way at nighttime. Because there is a master narrative that is still very present in my life, which says you could be drawing something that would make money this isn't like, you don't know if this thing will sell. (laughs) A lot of the times the art that I make with something bigger is for intentions other than sale. And lastly, (laughs) I often will experience pretty interesting results from drawing this way. Um, it, and sometimes it will feel absolutely like a failure. I've talked about this before with the goddess drawing that I did. It's like a, a half slice of a woman's face surrounded by some iconography. And then the other half of her face is invisible. It's one of my best-selling images. It's a sticker. It's a print. It used to be a mug. <laughs> and that drawing was a huge failure. I, I did half of it and then I couldn't move forward with it in a way that felt in alignment with something bigger. And so I just threw it in a drawer and forgot about it for two years. It absolutely felt like a failure. And it wasn't until two years later when I pulled it out, I pulled it out of the drawer that it was in and I saw it with fresh eyes and I realized, oh, she's, she's done. (laughs) She's supposed to be done. And these the steps of confusion and running counter and failure, these are all things that the overculture tells us is a problem. You know, we didn't have a problem with those things as children, right? Confusing people wasn't really in our repertoire when we were little. Um, There weren't any master narratives in our space at that time. And failing was not 
like failure was not really a thing either. Like, I don't know. Did you, have you ever seen a kid get mad? Like get so mad trying to learn how to walk that they give up, (laughs) you know, unless there's something physiologically wrong that never will happen. (laughs) That level of failure doesn't exist for little kids. Like they're naturally and biologically primed to completely disregard failure as a problem. Failure is not a problem. It's just like a part of the deal. (laughs) And they just keep doing it until they're running around and climbing on stuff like crazy. That doesn't cease to be true as we get older. It's just educated out of us. So creative work like this is very dysregulating in the beginning. And I don't know if any of these steps are necessarily going to remove that dysregulation or that discomfort from your experience. But at the very least, I hope that you don't gaslight yourself about it now. Like when you sit down and try to intentionally connect with something bigger than yourself whether it's making a decision about a drawing or making a decision about your next job, <laughs> your next relationship, your next home, the next city that you move to, whatever. If you get lots of internal and external blowback or crunchiness around this process, at least you can know that you're not crazy. That this is, it's just actually part of the deal. There's no way to avoid it. It actually in many ways means you're doing it right. So something that I remind myself a lot is that when I'm making decisions that really don't make sense to other people, it's often a sign that I can trust myself even more. Um, I, I do think ironically working with something bigger is a way to re-regulate ourselves during this time you know (laughs) people will sometimes interact with intuitive drawings that I've done that have meant so much to me by the way and they just won't get it you know and that is very that makes actually a lot of sense you know a lot of the intuitive drawings I do are just for me or they're for a very specific person who will find them later you know and so most of the people that see them just won't get them that experience of not being seen can be very dysregulating for me because it's you know it's a particular way that I experienced some trauma when I was younger and I think a lot of us have um all, no one no one gets to be a human without trauma, right? Maybe, maybe it's fair to say some of us have significantly more or less, but all of us have it. All of us do. And the challenge for me has been keeping and parsing out the ways that my art continues to be regulating the way that making art with something bigger is ironically very regulating and that the parts that are dysregulating aren't necessarily the making part the making with something bigger but the people's reaction to the ways that I make with something bigger or my reaction (laughs) my ego's reaction my brain's reaction when I'm really in tandem with that thing I'm so soothed (laughs) 
And I remember kind of experiencing that when I was moving to Austin from Ohio, I was experiencing all of this blowback that was very dysregulating for my family and friends and, and also for myself. And, and it might seem and maybe unfairly so that I'm putting a lot of this on other people. Um, and I should say full disclosure here, most of the pain I experienced during that transition was self-imposed, <laughs> you know, and I, and I remember um, I started having this experience, this very mystical experience at the time when I was driving um, with birds. It was very interesting. Like I, it, it happened a few leading up to my move to Austin. I would be driving home from school. And at the time I lived pretty far south in the freaking farmland <laughs> parts of Ohio. Um, and I would drive through like fields and fields to, to get home from, from my school job. And I would often be like at a country intersection of some kind. And I started seeing birds. Like one day I saw an owl in the middle of the day, just like sitting on a post staring at me. Another time it was a hawk, like right by the window of my car, just like by the side of the road, like staring at me. And I started to get the sense that this time in the car was more than just a drive, that I was getting to interact with something bigger and that that became very re-regulating. Like I started to feel comfort, like that there was something in nature that was trying to talk to me and tell me it was going to be okay. And I experienced the same when I'm drawing, right? Like that we can reaccess this space anytime we want. Um, and ironically, the more that we access this space, <laughs> the more that we make decisions from the space, the more other people will be confused by it. And there have been no shortage of people across space and time in every field imaginable that have talked about this that the more that you start to create in tandem with something bigger than yourself, the more other people will be confused by it. I have learned that there are similarly, <laughs> similar to the three steps of knowing I'm working with something bigger, there are three steps that I have found that are really helpful in navigating the crunchiness of that experience with a little more grace and ease and peace. <laughs> And the first one is finding people that are doing the same thing. I had unintentionally been doing this more in my undergrad, like in high school and in my undergrad, but it was when I moved to Austin and I was going through this really big upheaval that many people didn't understand that I met Chris. And Chris is a friend. I realize like I'm using her first name. <laughs> it's fine. She... um was in my grad school program and we were so different. Like I remember when I first met her thinking, I don't know if she, you and I are going to be close. Like she was so different from me. She's from LA. She was very sporty. I was very like, she's um, very tan. And she like wore really bright colors. And, you know, I tend to be more of like a pale, neutral, quieter <laughs> type of person just like externally we were so different and then internally we were really different too and like so many amazing relationships that actually primed us to be excellent friends and one of the things we bonded on 
was that we were both going through a similar experience of making life decisions that other people didn't understand, especially around relationships. And as I was separating from my partner in Ohio, she was she was one of the first voices in Austin that 100% got what I was going through and didn't view me as crazy. That, you know, like everyone else in my life up until that point was kind of like having more practical conversations with me. And... Chris, because she was moving through a similar space, really seemed to understand that. Also, though, I do think that sometimes people don't have to be going through the same thing as you or to have a similar mindset as you to be really helpful. My friend Krista, who also lived in Austin at the time, I remember going to her when I was finally ready to pull the plug on Ohio and my relationship and my job in Ohio and everything. And I was going over all of the pros and cons of this decision with her because I still just really was afraid to trust this thing that was bigger. Like it felt too scary. I had been struggling with it for a year. And I remember Krista saying to me, well, if you had a magic wand and you could just make exactly what you wanted to happen happen, what would that be? And (laughs) Krista was not going through a remotely similar experience in her life at the time. She had a very grounded, practical, everyday routine. She was a school psychologist in, um, you know, a, a nearby public school system. She, you know, was doing exactly what I was trying not to do <laughs> in my life. But she was a therapist, and she understood that there is something that there was something bigger I was trying to interact with. And her magic wand metaphor was the perfect, almost like a sword that cut away all of the confusion that I was experiencing. And I would say that the magic wand metaphor, by the way, is an excellent tool for healing after years of not making with something bigger. Like if you really want to know what something bigger wants for you, You can use that. Ask yourself, if I could make this exactly how I would want, because I had total power with this magic wand, what would that be? Ironically, maybe not ironically, maybe interestingly, curious, curiously. (laughs) This thing is steeped in magic. This thing that's bigger is steeped in magic. And as you start to make your art and life with it, you will start experiencing a more magical life too. The second thing for me was sharing my wins with this process. Um, By the time I was making art full-time in 2016, I was very intentionally making art with something bigger by this point. And I admittedly had some pain from all of the times that I had gaslit myself, all the times that I had second-guessed myself, all the times other people had done the same. And I began posting about all of my wins. And I remember having friends in Ohio, friends that had knew me in the grossest times of my early years when I was so insecure and I cried all the time and I made decisions based on other people. And, and from all, for all intents and purposes, I looked erratic and like I was losing at life, you know? And I remember having friends say, what did, what did you, what did you do? You know, like, and maybe not really wanting an answer to that, but, but sensing that something 
more than just Borelli will had been at play. That when you start making in tandem with something bigger, it will catch people's attention and you, and you should feel good about that and share it because the podcast, this podcast has become an avenue for me to talk about these things directly so that I don't, you know, so that I have an avenue and an outlet to do that. But I don't talk about these things with anyone else um, because it's, it's interestingly unhelpful um, to talk about them with people that aren't ready for it. Um, I was listening to Joe Dispenza. He's someone, I'll link to his work in the show notes too. He's someone whose work I've, had, I've really enjoyed. And he was talking about the ways that our nervous systems prime us to receive support. And he said that you could go up to somebody who's having a problem and you could give them an answer to their exact problem. And if their nervous system isn't in a place to receive it, they will absolutely not hear it. And I know immediately just saying that people can think of a time that that's happened to them on both sides. Like there have been times where Jason has come to me with the exact solution to my problems and a year later I'll absorb it, (laughs) you know? And so that's, it's the same with making art with something bigger. Like sometimes it can feel like you're beating your head against a wall. Like you just wish people could see what you see when it comes to interacting with your work and life this way. And also it's okay. You know, it's not about teaching them anything. It's just about being an example and maybe they'll come to it in their own time. And when their energy and nervous system is in the right place, they're going to receive it naturally with or without your help, you know? And the last thing I have used to heal from years of working without something bigger is, is finding good teachers that are doing the same and are intentionally teaching about it. Um, because when you are in a space to receive teachers are exceptionally supportive. I will say that they are not a substitute for my own inner knowing. In fact, at some point, and I think there's a lot of quotes about this (laughs) at some point, um, your something bigger will start telling you to do things that run counter to what your teachers say. And that's a good thing. But in the beginning, it is so tremendously helpful, not even to have information from them necessarily, but just to be hearing from people that know how you feel. Because it makes you feel a lot less crazy. That's been a theme of this episode, by the way, is is the ways that we can feel a little nutty around this process and the more community you have that is doing the same thing and that you can talk to about it or even just listen to about it is is tremendously helpful my favorites are Alyssa Mailhorn and Lindsay Mack from Tarot for the Wild Soul these are my two go-tos you know moving forward in my my artistry and in my life you know Take what resonates with you and leave the rest. This was a lot of information and also a lot of stories. And I am admittedly learning alongside of you how to talk about this. So yeah, nuggets here and there, but maybe some of it is just going to get dumped after listening and that's okay. I enjoy this space with you so much. Thank you for listening 
and I look forward to talking to y'all next week. Peace.